Coming up on Tech Nation, the story behind the story, the impact of all that technology you hear about from CES in Las Vegas. I interview members of the panel, Who Owns Athletes' Data? That would be Dr. Leslie Saxon from the Keck School of Medicine at USC and Eric Winston, the president of the NFL Players Association. And what about fans now that virtual reality is coming of age? We'll hear from Dave Offhauser, who heads sports and entertainment from Intel. And for a vision of our lives with the new autonomous vehicles, none other than Guy Kawasaki. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Sometimes science doesn't prove much of anything, except that life is not all about us, as in we humans. 500 years ago, the likes of Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo Galilei, Johannes Kepler, and even Tycho Brahe, who had no telescope, were all convinced that the Earth revolved around the sun. In fact, it was not even a new notion. In 300 B.C., the Greek astronomer Aristarchus of Samos suggested the very same idea and was basically ignored. The date being 300 years B.C., that is, before Christ, the Catholic Church had not yet been founded and couldn't register an objection. But let's not put aside the Church's objections so lightly. I always got the feeling that the resistance boiled down to a human trait, not a religious one. Man is at the center of everything, right? Look around. Humans always think that they're at the center of everything. Then sometimes science comes along and shatters that perception. And it's the shattering of human perception that's the problem, not the truth about the world that so many believe God created. Science often advances when perceptions are abandoned, and this was most recently experienced by three graduate students at Caltech, friends in fact, when one began to notice that the jellyfish he was tending in the lab, for one reason or another, well, it looked to him that the jellyfish were sleeping at night and waking up in the morning, so to speak. No way, says science. Jellyfish don't have brains. They don't have a central nervous system. They don't sleep. Brains need sleep for proper functioning. In humans, it's to knit together the traumas of the day, the stresses and the overloads, new facts and everything else, so you can start afresh in the morning. Now, please do note that my saying that science actually says something out loud is just a turn of phrase. There is no ghostly visage of science interrupting the conversation of graduate students. But the great body of science does say that you need at least a nervous system to sleep. Well, if there was one thing Caltech has been teaching these students, it was how to do science. So they thought they would check it out. The journal Current Biology has just published their findings. To my delight, 
Never before have I seen three graduate students, one, two, three, the lead three authors on a paper. That's true recognition. They thought up the test, they conducted the research, and they published the findings while remaining appropriately scientifically cautious. The title reads, The Jellyfish Cassiopeia Exhibits a Sleep-Like State. Very scientific. Maybe it's not sleep. Maybe it's just sleep-like. Words must not befuddle accuracy in science. Still, it reminds me of several family conversations over the years. You woke me up. No, I didn't. You weren't asleep. Yes, I was. As the interchange devolves, we now have the option of throwing in, I was in a sleep-like state. Reading the article further produces other useful terms, including nighttime quiescence, an excellent alternative to sleep-like state, which occurs after dark. And feelings of empathy emerge when we learn the poor jellyfish are sluggish and unresponsive in the morning if they've been woken up every 20 minutes with enthusiastic spurts of water. However science ultimately settles the question of what is and is not sleep, these students allowed themselves to think that jellyfish could do what they weren't supposed to do. And that's how breakthrough science happens. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the story behind the story, the impact of all that technology we hear about from CES in Las Vegas. We look at the question of who owns athletes' data with USC's Dr. Leslie Saxon and Eric Winston, the president of the NFL Players Association. We'll hear about fans and virtual reality from Intel's Dave Offhauser and a view of our lives with the new autonomous vehicles from Guy Kawasaki. Dr. Leslie Saxon is a professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California and executive director of the USC Center for Body Computing. I asked her how she would define an athlete's data. I think the athlete's data is pretty much anything that's recorded off an athlete, meaning off their body or anything that's recorded because of an athlete's action. So you could think about that latter category as point scored or a player tracking system that may track an athlete across the field. And you could think of the former as a sensor the athlete might be wearing that will provide information as to their heart rate or their explosiveness or their sleep. And we're having more and more of these sensors and sometimes not just sensors, just the ability to collect more data over time from expecting from normal sensors. So we're getting a bigger, bigger picture of, of athletes in performance. We are. And, and I think while that's good, it's still the Wild West kind of unregulated days of putting sensors on athletes and trying to measure stuff. There hasn't been any one product yet. I don't think that an athlete or a team can't live without. And that reflects the sort of 
where we are. A lot of the sensors um, don't work particularly well, either in training or play or one or the other. Um, they're not what I would call medical grade. Many don't show you the real data. It's a correlation. So for instance, take take a watch, take an activity watch. That measures your pulse, right? But it does so indirectly through through a light source. So that's not a direct EKG. That's a direct measure. So as we get better and better with the sensors and as regulated companies who actually make this stuff and are developing wearable product lines get into the space, we'll start to be able to trust the data. And I think once we can trust the data, and because most of the data is wireless and digital, once we know the data is secure, because that's another important piece of this, the cybersecurity, then we can treat the data like the athlete's health record. But the space is so immature that and developed so rapidly that there's not even any governance of the data, either from a bioethical standpoint uh, or others. So for instance, in medicine, we have ethics boards and we have the FDA and we show that stuff is safe and effective and applied to the right people. None of that exists in sports. So it's all being sorted out, which makes it very exciting, but also makes it a little bit too early to have yielded that product I talked about. When I look at football players, everybody's looking at all the, the, the games, they're looking at statistics, they're looking at, at any number of things that we could just call athlete data, and yet these are paid professionals. Is it clear who owns the data? It's not. In, in my opinion, it, it's sort, it's, first of all, a lot of the problem sets are similar with patients, but in my opinion – the patient owns the data and the athlete owns the data because guess what? It's their data and particularly serial data and data that you collect over time because to get actionable insights from this data, you have to kind of baseline players, figure out what their normals are and then start to collect data. And, you know, you can imagine being able to have data season after season that you can kind of see how much treads off your tires, how you're rehabilitating, things like that. The, the holy grail of this, right, is to be able to neither undertrain or overtrain a player and to be able to develop predictive analytics before an injury happens or think about football before a concussion happens. Once a concussion happens, you're down that road, a, a dangerous road, right? If you can get measures before a concussion happens or a non-contact injury or a potential more serious health event, that's when I think you'll provide real value. The other challenge to this field, and we work in the military – as well, that's a fascinating problem is you have to deliver the data at multiple levels. You have to deliver it to the athlete. You have to deliver it to the coach. You have to deliver it to the team trainer, to the front office, and potentially to the league in the same way you have to deliver it to a soldier, um, a company commander, a platoon commander, you know, a battalion commander, a general. Each one of those wants different things and needs different things. So um, there are many challenges in the area, but I think the table stakes are really accurate sensors. Now that medical companies, regulated medical companies are getting into the space, we'll have some of that. It's not just performance sensors that give you heart rate or respiratory rate. It's metabolic sensors, continuous glucose, continuous lactate. The sky's sort of the limit. And then the biomechanics piece, what muscles are firing, what should, what muscles fire in what order and in what way when the player is optimized. One of the very humbling and fascinating things I'm finding from this work of collecting data continuously both in patients and in athletes is that each player is different. Even in the same skilled position or every diabetic is not the same, their response to food, to exercise, to other things is different. So the value of this field when it matures will be in very individualized recommendations. 
for people, that that's where the value comes from, right? This is true for you. It's not like every running back's the same. Wide receiver, diabetic, it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, Marine, they're all very different. Their physiology is different. Now, in truth, while this is all a person's health data, they're an athlete's health data, it's not covered under HIPAA. There's no protections there. Well, I think this is what we need to start developing, um, a governance around the – first of all, this da- as I mentioned, the state is connected. It has to be cyber secure. Nobody wants a breach in their performance data. Um, there has to be a business model behind the data for professional sports. And in my view, that should be something that's controlled by the athletes since it's their data. If athletes play longer, do better, stay less injured, that will itself deliver more money and value. Uh, so I think we have to back up, get the governance straight. Imagine the way I like to approach these problems is imagine the idealized state. What does the athlete want? What would really be valuable for them? Then go build all that tech and IP. It's not that these days are horrible. It's always the Wild West, unregulated, new stuff. Hey, we can do it. <laughs> disruptors. Yeah. So we need that innovation and we need those types of things. And then we need to sort of rarefy it and get it to where it's accurate and meaningful. It occurs to me that the professional athletes that I know or the athletes that are in, say, national, global competition, Olympics, um, they don't want to reveal they have injuries. One of the also issues in both in – some, in some respects in, in patient care in athletes and military is that there's a penalty for disclosure. So if my patient discloses something to me like they didn't take their medicine, maybe they think I'm judging them as not a good person. If an athlete discloses an injury that's not apparent, that could hurt them. If a warfighter does the same thing, they won't be redeployed potentially. So there's a real incentive not to disclose. How do we take that away? Well, one of the things we can't do is penalize a player if we don't know what the data means. Um, So we first have to really do the research to understand if this data is meaningful or not. Before and and we have to. That's why the governance is so important. Imagine being in a team where somebody doesn't like you, and the person collecting the data doesn't like you or think you're a team player. He can interpret that data and tell the coach something that may or may not be accurate that could really adversely impact you, right? Your playing time or something else. So I, I it's, I've evolved a you know a real personal belief that everything really pretty much has to go through the player, and that's why I like working with people like Eric and the Players Association, to try to understand what that could, what that should look like. And that will bring value for the owners. It will. Now, we have several levels here. The first is collecting accurate data. But as you've actually touched on several places in this conversation, it's like, okay, we got accurate data. Now, what does it mean? How do we figure out what all this data means? It takes time. Even I'm a, as you mentioned, I, I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist who studies heart rhythm disorders, and I'm seeing data in my own patients continuously now through their implanted devices or with other sensors. And I don't even know what it means because I'm not used to seeing continuous data. I benchmark it to episodic data that I am used to looking at. But over time, we've learned what this data means. Sometimes it means a lot. Sometimes it means very little. So you need to contextualize it. You need to benchmark it to things you know or events that happen, and then you can start to understand it. And as I mentioned, probably the most profound insight from this is that everybody's their own normal. We used to think things were true for a large group. It turns out even people's glucose response to certain foods vary wildly. Well, that is a huge implication for how you tell people to eat. Yeah, for, and, and I the think standard people, training table for some athletes no. a high carb or low carb. You know, yeah. it may be very different for indiv- for each individual. So that's 
Again, that's the kind of benefit, but it's going to take a while in some like research discipline to figure this out. So it sounds like in addition to getting all these things set up, we need to at some point get sort of an, a, an athlete baseline for each individual a- athlete, possibly even you know as they go into college sports or high school sports to understand where is your baseline and, and how are we operating off of it. That's exactly right. And that's that's the work we do at the Center for Body Computing. And the earlier, the better, because once someone makes it to the NFL, they've played a lot of football, right? So you want to get on athletes as early as possible to really be able to see what the changes have been. And the other piece we haven't talked about that's equally as important is measuring their cognitive and behavioral load and ability, because there's a lot of secret sauce that goes into performance that happens you know, above the neck. So we have to understand that better as well. Well, Dr. Saxon, thank you so much, and and you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you. Dr. Leslie Saxon is a professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California and executive director of the USC Center for Body Computing. Also on the CES panel, Who Owns Athletes Data?, was Eric Winston, the president of the National Football League Players Association. Well... Eric, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Now, you're president of the NFL Players Association, and you've had a long career. You know, Houston Texans, Kansas City Chiefs, Arizona Cardinals, Seattle Seahawks, Cincinnati Bengals. Well, no wonder you're elected president. Everybody knows you. Yeah, I've gotten around. <laughs> you have gotten around. Now, uh, we spoke earlier today with uh, Dr. Leslie Saxon about athletes' data and who owns the data, and you were on that same panel. We wanted to have you up. Um, and we wanted to talk about the NFL players, their perspective about all this data and all this technology. Is it affecting them? Oh, yeah. I, I think affecting is, is an interesting word. I think more so than anything, it's our job as the PA to make sure that they're protected more than anything. And I think the protection comes from obviously legal protection in the sense of what we were talking about ownership, right? Yeah. And who owns the data? How's that process? And and what exactly is that data that should be owned or should be private? If, if for instance, and then from there, obviously there's some applications that people keep talking about that probably still aren't there, whether it's helping them train, helping them with dietary issues with whatever you can imagine. And then there's this also this kind of pie in the sky thought of monetizing it, right? And whatever that means. And, and, and hopefully we can get there on all of those things. But the biggest priority to me for us is the protection of the data for the player. Now, is data ownership of the data, collection of data, is any of that in any of the players' contracts? No, there is some issues in the CBA that speak to certain data that can be collected, um, miles per hour, stuff like that. There's certain sensors that they can, um, that teams can uh, you put t- on. Like, you slowed down, so you're off the... Yeah, yeah, they don't have to worry about me running anywhere. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's those those type of things. But I don't think anybody quite knows where to go next, right? And my thing is, is it might go a lot of different ways, but again, I just rely on and go back to that idea is as long as we own that, as long as we, each player and the PA as a whole 
um, keep those rights reserved, I think we'll be okay in the end. Well, I like the idea of rights reserved. It means we we can't negotiate something we don't understand. Dr. Saxon was saying we need more research to understand what it is. I'm going to quote you from the panel. You said, I'm not completely convinced anyone knows what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, you, you, if you talk to enough people around here, they'll convince you that, they'll, that they know what they're talking about. And every single one of those people will, con- will contradict the other person that you just talked to. And so that's what makes me think that there's still a long way to go in a lot of these fields that people are getting to. Obviously, there's some very elementary data points like I was speaking about speed and and some of those things that yes you you can you can extrapolate some sort of conclusions from some of that especially in training et cetera but some of these these longer analytical thoughts that people are still trying to put together or if you do x then then that 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 turns into y and that y means this I, I don't think anybody's there yet and I don't think anybody quite knows exactly what they're doing to get there. I think people have some interesting theories. I think people have some interesting thoughts. And just like any other industry, and especially um, a, a, a an industry in its infancy, there's some people that are going to end up being right. And there's going to be some end up some people end up being wrong. And again, I think for us, it comes back to not necessarily trying to hop on a wagon of someone being right and wrong. It's a matter of like we were talking about in the panel of of making sure those rights are protected, but also gathering the data so that when somebody is right, we can move in a direction that is beneficial for the players. So we keep moving and then we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. We'll let these smart people here at CES figure it out and then we'll just hop on right and behind them. They're almost like our lead blocker. Now, we've been talking about individual data. The truth is, is when the team gets together and the team is performing both on and off the field, there's a lot of data that's sort of interconnected team data. Well, without a doubt. I mean, if you want to talk about data, I mean, there's also there's data points, right? Statistics are some of that. And you combine two statistics with each other. And baseball has been doing that now for the last 15 years of different sort of uh, statistical metrics and this whole idea of money ball, et cetera, that they've been doing. And now it's trying to spread out into basketball and they've got uh, the cameras and they have the interesting way of doing sh- um, shooting percentages now. What's a good shot? What's a bad shot, et cetera. And obviously when you now move out, out into football, it's I think it's much harder. Obviously, 11 guys on the field. Uh, baseball is a much more individualistic sport in a way. You have a pitcher. You have a hitter. Yes, you have some fielders, but there's there there's a direct conclude. You can say that guy did not hit the ball, therefore he's not a good hitter. Those are a little those those conclusions are easier to to make than in football when you have a receiver that only gets one catch during a game. It's hard to say he's a bad receiver. There's a lot of things that could have happened. The quarterback might not have had time to get it to him. The quarterback might not have been good enough to get the ball to him. There's a lot of things that go on. The defense could have double teamed him and left two other guys wide open. So it's hard to do some of those things that I think people are trying to do right now in football. Uh, but it's interesting. And I think people like it. People are into it. Again, I don't know if they mean anything. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think anybody knows what they mean. So, but it's, again, I, I think you probably can't get there without some trial and error either, though. What about attitude? Uh, most of the people that I have met, if not all of the people I've met, I was just being careful there when I said that. If you're a professional athlete, you will do anything to really succeed. 
are the players very oriented to technology or is there just so much going on in a day in a season that you can't be? I definitely think it's it's much as society is. You know, the new millennial types are very interested in it. The newer guys, the younger guys in the league that have grown up with a lot of this technology, a lot of these uh, sensors and things like that that have been on them for a long time now, they look at that and say, oh, man, I, I need to know how much I ran and what my explosive yards were, and that means something to them. But you put that on a guy that's been in the league for 15 years, he'd look at you like you're crazy because that's not part of his upbringing. That's, they're really from two different sort of generations. When you think of that, my career sort of spanned that arc in the same way in the health and safety space as well. So it's, it's an interesting perspective I feel like I have. Uh, when you start talking about this, because I, I know the guys that were in the league when I first came in, would there would be two different trains of thoughts there. So it is fascinating to see how some guys look at it and think it gives them an edge. And I think there's a certain amount of to each their own. If Even if it's a placebo, if, if you feel like you're getting better because of it, that's okay too. And I, that's the way I look at it, and I think that's the way a lot of guys look at Yeah, they'd love – I. They love anything that, that's going to help them train better, be better, recover faster, whatever that might be. But at the end of the day, is it is it one size fits all? Is it something that everybody can use or is it something that they feel is specific to them? Who am I to say really at this point? And they, of course, their safety needs to be protected, not in terms of this data that comes to them. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, like I said, that's at the very beginning of all this before we get into the, the applications, the monetizations, everything else. For me, it's more about making sure that their personal property stays their personal property. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Welcome back anytime on Technation. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is great. Eric Winston is the president of the National Football League Players Association. More information is available at NFLPA.com. Technology is not simply impacting the athletes. It's also impacting the fans. I was able to speak with Dave Offhauser, Managing Director of Sports and Entertainment at Intel. Well, Dave, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, you really, uh, you really piqued my interest today. Uh, you were talking about the future of fandom, fan experience. Yes. Now, all of us, it doesn't matter whether it's you know, baseball, football, we all go, we, we get our ticket, we go to our seats, we get our hot dogs or, you know, popcorn or whatever, and we might have a jumbotron or a couple of screens, and we sit there and watch the game. That's like so last millennium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's changing? It is. Well, I mean, there are so many different things that are changing across the sports and, and media landscape. Uh, we at Intel Sports, our mission is really to completely reinvent and change the way that fans are engaging with the content, the teams, the sports, the athletes uh, that they love. And the way we're doing that is through what we call immersive media. So virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, and doing that in extremely unique ways that, again, completely change the way that fans are interacting with the content. Give us an example. A great example is what we've done with the PGA Tour, where we have an end-to-end -end solution that does everything from capturing to producing to all the secret sauce technology around encoding, stitching, coloring, resolution to deliver content to an end application that you as a fan 
can get called, in this case, PGA Tour Live and completely immerse yourself to watch and experience golf in this case. We'll take something like the 17th hole at Sawgrass, and, which is a very iconic uh, hole for the PGA Tour. I'm speaking with Dave Offhauser, Managing Director of Sports and Entertainment at Intel. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Guy Kawasaki gives us his vision of how the world will change with autonomous vehicles. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dave Offhauser, Managing Director of Sports and Entertainment at Intel. He was describing the fan experience for the Live 360 virtual reality coverage. We'll take something like the 17th hole at Sawgrass, and, which is a very iconic uh, hole for the PGA Tour. And we put somewhere between four and eight cameras around the event. And we will enable fans to experience that hole as if they were there. And they get to transport themselves to any one of those, from our perspective as a camera, from their perspective as a location where they're sitting there virtually watching the players tee off or putt on the green or chip or wherever they are. Pick a place. And pick a place. And they get to choose. Or they can click our VR cast, and lean back and let us take them through the storytelling, that full production. So we do this kind of thing for the PGA Tour. We've done it with Turner uh, for the Final Four, where we had the same concept, where we provide, again, an end-to-end uh, solution for Turner. But from a fan perspective, you are enabled to, again, watch the Final Four courtside or watch it from the coach's box or watch it from up in a suite. And in this case, with the Final Four, we're able to purchase a virtual ticket 
to the Final Four, so both the Final Four game and the championship game, and experience this in a whole new way, completely immersive. As if you were there. In as a if seat. you were there in a seat, but you can also move around, right? You can go from seat to seat, different locations. And they're not giving you the eye going, we know you don't sit there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> in fact, you can have multiple people in the same seat in this case, right? At the same time, it's incredibly personalized because everybody might be watching something different. Well, I might be watching the point guard and you might be watching the center. I might be watching one team. You might be watching the other team, even if we're looking at it from the same angle. Or we might lean back and let the producers take us through the storytelling like a normal production. Uh, that personalization is a, is a key. The camera switching or the ability to change seats is a key to our technology as well. Of course, I took my kids to the baseball game all the time and they thought, Everybody sat in the bleachers. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine too many people sign up yeah, for the so bleacher we'll, seats. <laughs> you know, we've, we've produced baseball as well with Major League Baseball. We do a, a game of the week. And one of the unique things about, as, as baseball fans know, is each stadium is a little bit different, unlike other sports. And so there are iconic places and stadiums where we can transport and take fans. So, for instance, in Boston, being able to watch the game from the Green Monster, right? Who gets to do that? Or if you're in phoenix and be able to watch the game from the pool so we can put a camera there and then enable a fan to experience the game to feel what it's like to be in those iconic places around the stadium in addition to the normal angles that you might get uh, or the normal places you might get or what we consider normal now which might be hey i want to be in the dugout or i want to be in the first row or i want to be up in the uh, radio box uh, where, so you get the, the view from are. the dugout? We can get a view from all different places, yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, it is very cool. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Now, one of the things that I think is important about all these games is you got to know the score. you got to know who's who in, in golf. you got people all over the course, and they're, they're doing better and, and worse, and you've got staggered st- scores coming in, whereas, you know, in baseball, that's pretty straightforward what right. the score is, you know. Uh all the statistics that are going on, how do you bring yeah, so, that to life? So as we think about how the storytelling in virtual reality evolves, stats are a key, key component to it. Um, the way in which we integrate stats and the way we do that storytelling is is has a potential to be incredibly unique. And baseball is one key. I mean, certainly stats are key across all sports, but the storytelling using stats in baseball is obviously you know, very unique with all the different uh, pieces of data that can be used as content. So the idea is when a fan is immersed in this world, uh, they are in a 360-degree world. We can do anything. We can show all different kinds of visualizations of that data together with the video. So the video may or may not be 360-degree video. It's all three-dimensional. It's all stereoscopic. But the video might be 180, and the rest of the 360-degree environment or virtual canvas that we enable fans to experience might have data on them. You might look to your right and be able to see all the stats on that batter. You might look to the left and be able to see pitch data or location data or defensive data and visualize that in whole new ways that you otherwise would not be able to experience. Now, do you have to have a headset for this? So for the fully immersive experience, the best way to experience it is absolutely with a headset. So we distribute and create applications for use on Google Daydream, on Oculus Gear VR. We'll be launching uh, WinMR. Uh, Google Cardboard is a key component to it. Uh, so from a fully immersive experience, yeah, you do. Uh, however, the unique thing about our technology is you can also have 
that experience across 2D environments as well. So our technology, the same production that we do, you can watch on a mobile phone in what we call Magic View or a panoramic where you can pan, tilt, and zoom in and out. Or we can actually distribute on the social 360 channels, whether that's Facebook 360 or YouTube 360 or Twitter 360, and enable fans to do that. We, we kind of like to call that teaching our fans of VR. We want to show them what we can do and pull them through from being able to watch on social to being able to watch on a mobile phone and toggle back and forth between the panoramic and the Google Cardboard view to then get them to um, get that headset and throw your mobile phone into a headset and really immerse yourself in the experience. I heard that 2D, 2D pejorative. <laughs> Just 2D. Well, you know, You're gonna we, love but, this. Right. We, you know, everybody has a <laughs> has a 2D screen in their pocket today. Everybody. They do. We don't think of it that way. And we don't think of that, but you do. Screen. And that 2D screen, in its uh, in its and as, as a first step, can also become a 3D screen by uh, utilizing our technology integrated into existing mobile apps and using a device like a Google Cardboard. And then you can take it a step further to create that fully immersive experience. So uh, it's the evolution of the existing technology, but then getting fans to migrate to the newer technologies. A lot of people like to watch sports together. Yes. So what about them? Oh, social is key. Uh, I get often, I get asked the question all the time. If, I, if, if it's such a social experience, why do I want to put a pair of goggles or glasses on and immerse myself and be outside of the world? Well, I believe that there will be two, well, there'll be multiple, but two main use cases, right? There's the social use case where you're in the room with a bunch of people and sure, you're probably not going to go into your own world in there, in which case AR or mixed reality is probably a more apt uh, application. It's still going to be highly immersive. You might um, throw down a full three-dimensional experience on the table in front of us and be able to circle around and watch from any angle with your friends. But the second use case, which I also think is going to be uh, extremely popular, is the fully immersive experience. It will also be social. VR is inherently and will continue will be inherently a social experience, but the difference here is I'll be able to experience and watch or, or consume or interact with the content with my friends who are thousands of miles away. So I can be watching a basketball game, a soccer game, and somehow connect with my friends and bring them into the game, and we'll be in sync and we'll be watching together, and we can really, we'll be able to talk to each other. We'll be able to signal to each other and share the game as if we were together, even though I might be in San Francisco and someone else might be in New York. But and we're we'll all in to, seat 3E. But we're all in seat 3E, exactly. <laughs> Looking at the same exactly. thing. And then imagine taking that even a step further where you can enable one of you to act as the producer or act as the self-director and take everyone else in that through your own storytelling of that of that game. Take them down to the to courtside or take them to a suite or wherever it might be. Or everyone might be experiencing the same game live from different angles and be able to talk to each other and say, hey, come over here and check this out or come over here and check this it, out. Even his though you're knee did the touch game. the ground. His right, knee did exactly. touch the ground. <laughs> and have the argument and all the banter that goes with a social experience. So absolutely VR is inherently social. And we still need to develop out the full capabilities of that technology, but the seeds of that exist today and we're we're working on that. So it was funny to say, hey, his knee did touch the ground. Now we're talking about 
gee whiz, you know, now we're going to get over into the regulations and decisions and things like that. You're out of that thing. You're just entertainment. You're not trying to interfere with anything on the field. Well, not today. Not today. We won't do anything on the field, but we do have another technology called TrueView, which is volumetric video, right? Eventually, volumetric video will also be in virtual reality. Now, but what but, is volumetric so video? Volumetric video is is the ability to capture the entire volume of an arena or the entire volume of a stadium. And think of it as a three-dimensional pixel, which we call a voxel. So when you're able to capture the entire volume of an arena or a stadium, you can then take a camera and put it anywhere, a virtual camera anywhere. Because at the end of the day, what we're really doing in that case is we're capturing data. And that data, again, can be sliced and diced into individual little pixels or voxels, three-dimensional pixels. And with that infinite number of camera angles, we can take a player, a play, and spin it around in 360. We can enable something we call laser wall, which, although it's entertainment today, could certainly have applications for a referee down the line to decide whether something is a touchdown or decide whether a goal has been scored in soccer. That's not where we are today, but you could see those kinds of use cases down the road. But the one I'm most excited about with this technology is the experience of Be The Player, where we can enable you as a fan to see and feel and experience what it's like to be the player. And with this technology of being able to capture the entire volume, we can essentially put a virtual camera as if you were in the eyes of whoever your favorite player is, whether it's a football player or a basketball player, or whomever. And, and audio is a major component of that. It's not just the physically looking; you got to hear. Absolutely. I mean, we 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 love to we love to see, but audio is absolutely fifty percent of the experience and the the evolution of how we capture audio and where we capture tie it, and it how to we the do data it, it and yeah. working on things like what's called ambisonic audio, where you can be in a virtual experience, but hear something coming from your left, your right, and feel like you're in a natural environment and turn around and see something that's happened. Um, sound is a really, really important component, especially in a virtual world where fans might be looking one way, but something else, some action happens somewhere else. You want to signal to them in some way without disturbing the visual experience. And sound is a really, really important component of that. You keep coming back to storytelling. Story, story, the story. You could have been saying, we got this great tech. You can do this. You can do that. You keep coming back to the story. Why is that so important? Well, at the end of the day, we're doing this for fans. You know, they may, be, they may not be directly Intel fans or Intel sports fans, but they're the fans of the customers, the teams, the leagues, the media companies, and, and it's for the fans. And fans, at the end of the day, they don't really care about technology. I mean, we are building all this technology, but what is technology if not to be able to deliver these amazing experiences for fans? So our focus absolutely is on the storytelling that, this, that our technology enables, on the experiences that our technology enables. And that, at the end of the day, is really what matters. You know, we've been talking about professional sports and, or regular sports that are in courts, they're on fields. It's, like, it's understood how the whole thing works. We're coming into the Olympics. There are all these venues going on all this time in places that, well, it's not going to happen again there for a long time. How are you approaching that? Well, we are incredibly excited about uh, our partnership with the Olympics. So we're doing something uh, pretty unique, which we hope we can uh, roll out to other partners, which is uh, we at Intel Sports 
are the host provider of experiences to the Olympic broadcast services. Um, this is one piece in Intel's overall relationship with the IOC and with the Olympics. But we at Intel Sports, again, we are providing virtual reality experiences to Olympic broadcast services, who then together we go out to each of the rights holders in any of the countries who opt in and provide them with their own branded experience around the Olympics. So we'll be producing about 30 different events at the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang in 2018. So you're coming up. And about half of those will be live and half of those will be sort of on-demand experiences. And we'll enable fans to really experience what it's like to be at an Olympic event. In the US, this will all be under the NBC Sports VR experience. So you'll be able to go to uh, you know, any of your normal app stores and be able to download the NBC Sports VR experience and experience this content. We're extremely excited about this partnership with Olympic Broadcast Services and providing fans ways to engage and interact and experience the Olympics. And you reminded us that so many of the places that are interested in these sports are global. Oh, it's, it's global. not just the United States. Yes, we have many uh, rights holders across the world who have opted into this experience in addition to NBC in the U.S. Well, Dave, thank you so much. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. I hope you come back and see us I again. would love to come back. Thank you very much for having me today. Dave Offhauser is the Managing Director of Sports and Entertainment at Intel. You never know who will be at CES, and that includes Guy Kawasaki, who today is Chief Evangelist for the Australian firm Canva and a brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz. Hey, I got a lot to talk to you about today, Guy, uh, but first of all, I forgot my manners. Welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thank you. I love your new digs. You like it. I yeah, do. we are broadcasting from <laughs> CES in Las Vegas. Yep. We're all still wearing our old clothes. but <laughs> I, I hope that a lot of people listen to this outside of Las Vegas because if it happened in Vegas and stayed in Vegas, we we're wasting our time Ooh, recording here. That would be bad. Yes. That would be very bad. Well, uh, let's actually start then <laughs> with why you're in Vegas yes. is that you are a brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz. It's a thankless job. Somebody has to do it. I have a feeling they've thanked you very well. <laughs> uh, and I'm very, very grateful. Very yes, grateful. Yes, well, yes. Here at CES, there are there's every major automobile manufacturer yes. globally, not just the U.S. Yes. ones. And Everybody's talking about autonomous driving. Everybody, but it means different things in, to different brands. It's a very complex thing. There's multiple levels of autonomousness, and you have to go up the scale. This concept that you just get in a car and say, "I want to go to, you know, KQD in San Francisco," and you fall asleep and you're there. That's a little ways Only off. Only if it's Lyft. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's not autonomous. <laughs> <laughs> So between AI and better digital maps and better sensors on cars, personally, I can't wait for the day when it is true that I can get in my house and say, let's go surfing. And get I in wake your car. Up and you I, know, you said, let's get in my house. Oh, well, that would be even better. <laughs> Autonomous housing. Uh, yes, get in my car. There you go. And an hour later, 
There you are. I'm at the beach. Surfing in the Pacific. And I will sleep. I will email. I'll do social media. I'll read. I'll do everything but drive. That, the next thing you know, yeah. you're going to want a warm shower in the car. Yeah, well, that would be the Emirates version of the car, yes. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I'm ready see. for that, too. You're ready for that. And you can all, you're, you're advising, you know, Mercedes, obviously. Yes. And so that about would the be shower. one thing about the shower. <laughs> We, we we should put you under non-disclosure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, no, I'm afraid this isn't going to stay in <laughs> Vegas. is isn't going to stay in Vegas. But let's talk about that autonomous driving. I mean, I have this sense that even if it's just augmented autonomous driving, yes. this is going to be – this has far more impact on society than just, oh, I don't have to drive anymore. Yes. Well, today you can get in a car – and you have adaptive cruise control. So this maintains the distance between you and the car in front of you. And if you slow down, or excuse me, if it slows down, you slow down. If it stops, you stop. If it starts again after a short time, you will start up again. Uh, one of the shortcomings of that theory is, let's say your adaptive cruise control, the car in front of you goes away on either side. So now it looks like you can go as fast as you've said it because there's nothing in front of you. But the reason why there's nothing in front of you is because you're taking an off-ramp. And so for most adaptive cruise control today, it says, oh, no car. I'll go go 75 like Guy said it, right? Uh, Doesn't know, oh, the reason why there's no car is Guy's on an off-ramp. But – now Mercedes, because of the precision of the mapping, knows, oh, he's on the off-ramp. Even though there's nothing in front of him, he's on a curve slowdown. So that kind of thing. But I think you know, that's a really great feature. But the societal impact is not just the autonomousness. It's also electrification, and it's also sharing. So there will be a world where people don't buy cars, and people call them with an app, and it comes to them, picks them up, and does all that. And you don't need a garage in your house because you don't own a car. Maybe there are a few parking lots in downtown areas because everybody's getting dropped off. I mean, there's a lot of ramifications that are really great. Now, some people may say, well, you know, if you're working for a car manufacturer, if people aren't buying cars, you're going to sell less cars. However, you could also build the case that the car that you and I own, it's used two hours a day. In a world where everybody's sharing a car, it may be used 24 hours a day, so it may wear out faster. But even if if you're conflicted like a car manufacturer and you want people to buy more cars, just because you want it to be so doesn't mean it will be so, right? And so you have to go with the flow. And if people don't want to buy cars or own cars, but they still need to get from point A to point B... You've got to adapt. And I'm not giving up my 1974 and a half Jensen Healy. You have a 1974 Jensen Healy? Yep. The sports car version? Yeah. Really? Yeah. You drive a a stick? I drive a stick. You do? (laughs) Of course. There's so few people who drive sticks anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, you had to in this car. (laughs) We could talk about my Jensen Healy. There's nothing like it here at the show. True. absolutely nothing like it. That is true. But... Whether you're talking high end to low end, there is more and we're just all moving in that direction. It's like you're you're not allowed to drive badly. <laughs> you can well, look over here. It will stop for you. Well, you know, typically AI doesn't get road rage, right? Yeah, and it doesn't get tired. No. Nope. doesn't get tired. 
today, and this has accelerated recently, 80% of Americans live in cities. It's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. And it's like, it's so convenient to live in a city now. Yeah. You've got all the, the cars, as you're saying, you know, hey, Lift. a lot of kids don't don't buy cars right. in, their, in their 20s, you know, when they got out of school and they get a job. That used to be the first thing you bought when you saved up a deposit. I know. You bought I mean, a car. That's why I went to work. Exactly. <laughs> and now what we're looking at is uh, why would you do that? Why would you have that? You know, and yet they have to have their smartphones and they've right. got computers. They've got other costs that we yeah. didn't have to have to have back I then. I know, but there's no smartphone that costs as much as a car. That's true, <laughs> <laughs> but better, faster, cheaper. Cars keep getting more and more expensive per dollar. Yeah, per whatever. But now I'm going to switch technologies okay. on you here. You're chief evangelist for Canva. That's yeah. C A N V A. And they're an Australian yes. outfit. And I actually had heard of them before you became the chief <laughs> advan- evangelist. They'll say that. They'll think I'm not indispensable. Yeah. No, no, no. This is several years back. And it was uh, uh, and it was just when infographics really started right. to get big. And now tell everybody what Canva is. Canva is an online graphic design service. So it enables you to create graphics presentations, social media graphics, flyers, posters, business cards. Uh, We've now integrated printing, so you can print all of the above. And basically, at the start of my career at Apple, I democratized computing, or I helped democratize computing. And at the end of my career, I'm helping to democratize graphic design. So you don't have to rent or buy high-end software that takes weeks to learn. And that's what we do. We democratize design. And we... We sign up tens of thousands of people per day, and literally more than a million designs are created every day on Canva. So it's, that's amazing. It amazes me too. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, that's a change. You know, it used to be, oh, well, you can have your own laptop and uh, or whatever you're dealing with, and and uh, you can do word processing. And it's yeah. like that's the last thing a lot of people are doing <laughs> with this. Well, I, I graphics is a little different because I think. Graphics was gated by the designer. So if you wanted a graphic, if you wanted a new cover photo for, you know, Tech Nation, you'd find a graphic designer, submit your proposal, get roughs back, go back and forth, right? Now you can just whip it out in Pretty a fast. Minute. A minute. A minute, really. A Pretty. minute. A minute. A minute. That's if you're on an old Windows computer. No, no a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's if you, you know, have a slurp out of your cup of coffee right. while you're waiting. Right. Canva is a, an Australian outfit. How did you end up with... They found me. They found me because the person that I work with on social media, a woman named Peg Fitzpatrick, was using Who's it. Who's been on Tech Nation. Who's been on Tech Nation, yes. And they saw that I, quote, was using it, although it was really Peg Fitzpatrick doing my social media. And so they reached out to me and I checked with Peg. I said, Peg, this is the company we use, right? She goes, yes. And I said, I should help them, right? She goes, yes, you should, guy. And three weeks later, I was chief evangelist. I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't, I was just living my, you know, happy life. But it's so interesting to to think that with all the technology and you've been involved in it so long and I've been involved in it so long and you know it's just it's just growing and and yet what's bringing you all this joy is this Surfing. simple surfboard. Well, not so simple but yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know you have the hottest one. <laughs> <laughs> uh well in 
when I was 48, I took up hockey. When I became 62, I took up surfing. And I gave up hockey to surf because I love surfing so much. And surfing is just, it's physically hard. It's mentally hard. It's, it's not ideal you take up surfing at 62. <laughs> I thought taking up hockey at 48 was not ideal, but taking up surfing at 62 is really not ideal. You could build this case like, oh, guy, it's because you're out in the water and you have no devices. And you know, that's not true. I have my watch. I'm getting text messages in the water. I have these, you know, these surfing apps that are supposed to be tracking the wave and all that. And, you know, I you got have GoPros. Technologicalized and all uh, uh, surfing. I, it sounds so negative the way you say that. <laughs> but I mean, I have a, you've but done it. <laughs> I have a reason, though, because when you start at 62, you have to cheat to achieve as much as you can. I don't have, you know, 14, 15 years to And you don't have a 22-year-old, uh, you know, body. Mm, not I'm not, that I that, checked that lately. That may sound negative, too. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> So I need a GoPro to show me, you know, what I'm doing wrong, popping up and turning. I oh. need I need everything. I need to track my waves. I, it's not easy. It's not easy, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but it's still good. It is utterly fantastic. If... if I, I try to interrupt my surfing to write every day. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Don't let that. If you have to choose, just surf. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. And so in this perfect world, to wrap up this, you know, everything here. So I would, we live over the hill in Silicon Valley, and I surf in Santa Cruz. So in a perfect world, I get in an electric autonomous vehicle in the valley. I say, take me to Santa Cruz. I do whatever I want for one hour. I don't care. I don't, you know, I have no cares in the world. I get off. I surf. I get back. I don't own a car. That would be a great world. <laughs> you got this worked <laughs> out. I do. I do. I just hope it happens before I die. But yeah. Well, I think you should be its brand ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> oh, there's always hope, Guy. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Maura. Come back anytime. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Guy Kawasaki is chief evangelist for the Australian firm Canva and a brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz. Signing off from CES 2018, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada, and for Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.